as a West Point alumni. I will pay you what you need. I will do what you need. You have got to go. What will it take? And she looked him in the eye and she said, if I go home, I will be killed. And so unless you can kill me, I'm graduating. And she was serious. Wow. I'm gonna need someone to help me I'm gonna need somebody's hand I'm gonna need someone to hold me down I'm gonna need someone to care I'm here. Awesome. <laughs> I think it looks like you're out on the street. Where, where like you're like in a festive environment back there. Yeah, right. Good night. Good night. Good night, right? Yeah, we're outside right now because it's um above 40 degrees in Watertown, so it's warm. Watertown, New York. Watertown, New York. Yeah. I should mention too that I'm joined by Holly. Welcome. Thank you. Good times. Good times. So, Vanette, so you're in Watertown, New York, which is very close to Fort Drum, New York, which is uh, a place that's near and dear to your heart, right? Because were you stationed there at Fort Drum? I was stationed at Fort Drum when I was a major, an iron major. I was stationed at Fort Drum. <laughs> nice. Nice. You're out in front of your. You're out in front of uh, what is it? Empire, Empire. Empire Square. I actually Empire. think. There it is. There it is. <laughs> so I, I actually had the distinct honor of being able to come there and visit you in Empire Square about three or four weeks ago, and it is just a phenomenal, amazing place. So tell me about your. Tell me about your restaurant there. So the restaurant that you see behind us, the, the footprint, it was actually built in 1811. 1811, that footprint you see was there, burned down in 1849. In 1855, this, this exact building, 18, it's been here since 1855. It goes two levels down and three levels up. Wow. So do you live on top of there? Do you have like do you have a yeah, residence? So, see those? That's my bedroom lights right there. All those lights. Yeah, I live straight like above it. You have like uh, it looks like you got spotlights or uh, LEDs or something up there. That's some serious. Yeah, stuff. that's it's and that's like right below my bedroom lights. So nice. so you got to get used to sleeping with lights on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Bennett, do you own the whole building? I do. Oh, very cool. So it was kind of. I mean. It was kind of an accident. I uh, was looking for a place to put a pottery shop and they showed me this place here. 
And I said, oh, that, that wouldn't be a great pottery shop, but there would be a great Mexican restaurant. And somebody heard me say that. So they thought I was putting a Mexican restaurant in there. And um, people started showing up at my house when I was in the army with resumes. And so I finally just decided to buy the place and, and back a Mexican restaurant. And the Mexican restaurant was in there till 2012. And then in 2012, they moved to a larger location. I was in Korea at the time, so I shut it down. I opened it back up in 2014. And we had a Caribbean restaurant in there from 2014 to 2017. And it, a lot of bad kind of issues. Um, then we had COVID, which was really great for me because then I, I evicted the last terrible tenant, shut it down, was able to put all the COVID money on it and revamp it for us because that whole i don't know if you can see all that glass right there that's yeah. all new and we did that with we did that with a bunch of new york grants and COVID money so when did you buy the place like so you were a major in the army and you're also like an entrepreneur so you're like you're looking to find a place you can invest in in Wartown. well and i thought i potentially might retire here because we love the schools and we love the community and we're, we're Catholic. And it was like the classic old new England class Catholic town where your kids go to school there and you go to church there. And it all seemed good until like junior high. And then I wanted the kids to go to all girls and all boys Catholic schools. So I actually retired in Louisville, rented this place out and looked into selling it. And I was staying in Louisville and then my youngest decided she wanted to come back to New York and go to an all girls school up here. So by the way, I've been to both of your places. I've been to <laughs> Empire Square and I've been to Louisville. Because when I was driving across the country with my daughter last year and I was linking up with Kenny Mintz, your, your Louisville location was on our way. And you said, please stay in my house in Louisville. Louisville is a magnificent home. It is like an old, kind of mansion almost it must be like five thousand square feet that you have there in louisville yeah it's actually it's also an old mansion this was built in 1855 and my louisville house was built in 1872 wow so i do have an affinity for old things and when did you when did you buy the louisville place i bought the louisville place in 2014 after empire square after empire square wow. so i was up in empire square uh, then I went down, I was still in the army. So I went to Alexander, no, I went to, uh, Washington DC. I did army casualty and army casualty moved to Fort Knox, Fort Knox. I moved to Louisville and that's where I realized they had better high schools. So I decided I'm going to retire in Louisville. I kind of just, kind of just paused Watertown. I got some tenants in there. I tried to ignore it. You can't ignore places that were built in 1855. Doesn't really work. But um, we loved Kentucky, and I just decided I'd figure out what I needed to do to keep the kids in Kentucky because they were just better high schools. So let's talk about the here and now. So you got four kids, and so where are your kids located now? What are their ages, and who's where? What's going on? I have twins. My first were twins, and one twin is in the house in Louisville, Kentucky. She goes to U of L, University of Louisville. Her sister is Katie and she works for the National Park Service in Washington, DC. So if you go to visit Washington, DC, 
and you were walking around the mall, that's her area. She is Korean War, Vietnam War, Jefferson, Lincoln, that whole little area there. So she's a national park tour guide. So how old are they? The, the twins? 23. 23, okay. 23. And Scotty is the next child. He is going to be a junior in Chicago. He goes to Loyola in Chicago. And then Madeline is my youngest and she was born here in Watertown and she's the one that said she wanted to come back to high school. So she goes to an all girls school in Troy, New York. It's a boarding school. And she actually just got a three-year ROTC at University of Portland. So she is going to Portland, Oregon. So I'll have Portland, Oregon, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Louisville, Kentucky. Incredible. So the, the Maddie, so Maddie was with you in Louisville, and she decided, I want to go to school in New Yeah, York. she did. She, she really did not want to stay in Louisville. She had found this all-girls boarding school in Troy, New York, and she actually thought that it would help her get into West Point because Emma Willard was the feeder school for Lady Cliff. Mm -hmm. And she had read about Emma Willard being the feeder school to Lady Cliff. And several years ago, if you were a, a West Point, if, if your parents had gone to West Point, you could get a West Point scholarship there because there were so many wives of West Pointers that had graduated high school from Emma Willard. So she had chose Emma Willard to potentially be a feeder school for West Point. So how many, how many girls are in that class in Emma Willard? Uh, she is a real small class. She has about 70. Okay. And do all of them board there or some of them are? No, not all of them board there. I think like 40% board there. Okay. And, so and it is an amazing school. Is she, is she done with school now? She graduated? like No, she graduates June 4th. Wow. Same weekend as West Point, I think, isn't it? No, West Point is this weekend. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think Navy's this weekend too, right? Maybe they graduate one day apart or something? Yes. Yeah, typically either Friday, Friday to Saturday. Yeah, Navy, we actually are going to that graduation Friday. Are you? We mentioned that Army, Army men's lacrosse beat Navy, which was a complete heartbreaker for Navy. But then to really rub it in, Navy ended up, and Army ended up advancing in the NCAA and ended up playing at Navy today. State today. And they lost 10 to 9, which stinks, but it was a great showing for the, for the Army men's lacrosse team. Yeah. That's fantastic. And then Army women's lacrosse team beat Navy this year as well, twice, I think, right? Yes, so, they beat them in, they beat them regular season, then they beat them in the Patriot League tournament. Wow. Wow. So Army, yeah, Army Lax is uh, showing up big time. Big time. Yeah. And then men's baseball won today. First round of the Patriot League. So they'll play tomorrow for the second round. And not just one in the first round of the Patriot League finals. They won 20 to five. Oh, my God. That's a beatdown. We would have like a mercy rule in Little League for 20. Yeah, yeah. 20 to five, they beat Bucknell today. So Bucknell's got to pull up their big boy pants and show up tomorrow and try to do something different. Did they, did they talk about a mercy rule? Like you say, let's just, you know, enough, enough, we're done. I don't think so. Apparently some guy had like eight RBI, so he wasn't having any mercy on anybody. <laughs> I spent a lot of my time coaching Little League. So I have so many Little League stories about mercy rules and when, 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 the winning, when the innings are supposed to end. And oh my God, there's so much, so much shenanigans that happen. You know, we had this rule that like, 
when the streetlights went on, the game was over. And it would revert back to the last completed inning. So like if you were winning in like the bottom of the fifth inning and then you went into the sixth inning and you started like take your worst picture and just walk people until the lights went on. on the right. Air. And then it would, it would revert back you win. Oh yeah, you'd stall. All kinds of uh, good times. We're done with Little League, my family. I think we're done with Little League and everyone's family here, right? Everybody's got we are, we are. I, yeah. your, your baby's going to college and my baby's uh, going into her senior year. And then obviously Vanette's baby's going to Portland. So the next chance of Little League is, uh, is going to be grandkids. Grandkids. And we have a big announcement that we have a new grandchild of the class of 91. Holly, you want to give us the, give us the great news. Yes, Keegan and Keegan and Jill, my son Keegan, married, who's married to Jill Robb, John Robb's daughter. They had a little girl last Monday. Her name is Ellie Rose. So we are all very excited. So it's a double 91 baby. Oh, wow. 91 royalty right there. Yes. 91 royalty. Yes. That's yeah, so we're incredible. very excited. Mark and I are heading out there on a week from tomorrow. Are you going to have coffee the, cups made? Tea cups, we, coffee cups? We need something. You need, we need something. something. Yeah. Yeah, we need something. But she, well, yeah. she's already got lots of army gear. I'm, I'm making sure she's outfitted in lots of army gear. I wonder how many grandkids there are out there, 91 grandkids. I was wondering that. Like, okay. at what point, at what point are there more 91 grandkids than there are 91 kids like there, there's clearly like there comes a point when that happens like there's more there's definitely more 91 kids and there are 91 people yeah so i will sure. i will tell you that my dad just had a classmate pass away so my dad is class of 62 so they've had their 60th reunion and he had a classmate and this is, I said, dad, there, you must've read that wrong. He said, no, this is what they said, that he had eight kids. Oh my gosh. And then he had 28 grandkids and 48 great grandkids. Oh my gosh. My dad was like, okay, I've only got one great grandkid. So he said, there's something wrong with me. 48 <laughs> at 60 years. So he's 80. 82, 84 years old, and he has got that many great grandkids. I said he must have been doing something like while he was a cadet. Wow. I won't say anything. Somebody with a math, science, and engineering degree could probably figure this out like what the probability is on any given year where there's more grandkids than there are kids. It's not quite yet, but it's probably within the next five to 10 years, I would say there's probably just bound to be more grandkids than there are kids. It's mathematics, you know? I would say it was probably like 20 years. Yeah, I would say it was like 20 years because you need all of your kids to have lots of kids. Yeah. Right. right. You know, our kids are now beginning to bear their own kids, right? They're right. And you need them all to have like multiple to yeah, outpack. So within the next 10 years, within the next 10 years, I would say every one of us is likely to have at least one grandkid in the next 10 years. Right. So then, that's, so then we have to have more grandkids than we do kids in order yeah. to have it be more. Yeah. I don't know. My kids don't really want kids. No. Okay. No, they don't. I don't. You don't have a question. Did you guys have we? I had a physics teacher 
who was not married at graduation, but his his woman and their four kids showed up at his graduation. Now it was like rock physics, but did anybody have that? He was hilarious. He was a major, graduated my dad, with four kids. So my dad has a had a classmate that wasn't the one who had this many kids, but I bet he did have, I bet he did have a kid or a couple kids. He, um, dad said at graduation, he said at graduation, the kids were standing there at the graduation parade yelling daddy. They were. Yes, exactly. That was the same, the same with this guy. (laughs) I don't think we, uh, well, if we had a classmate, well, we probably, maybe we had a classmate with a kid that showed up at graduation, but. I don't know. Yeah, we did. We had um who? Bomber. Um Bomb Bob Camp. He had a kid. His kid came to Ring Weekend. Really? <laughs> yes, yes. This is a funny. I want to get him on. I want to get him on this podcast because he's he's gonna be a great interview. Because he uh, he basically his his wife, um I think his his so I think his wife's name is Rana. And so it's Ron Bob Camp and Rana Bob uh Bomb camp. I never knew that. And yeah. I know him. The kid came to Ring Weekend and his tax said, My God, your little brother looks just like you. <laughs> oh. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, he does. <laughs> That's great. I can't imagine going through West Point and then having like the stress of just having to think about someone else. Well, he well, his thing was well, the reason why I want to get him on this because I think that there's something very powerful about this. They were married, obviously, right after West Point. And so they have like this two, two and a half year old kid as like young second lieutenants. There's like no money, right? So his thing was that they would go to the PX to buy diapers because you could put those on your credit card and then you could, you, you could float the money to your next paycheck because they literally did not have enough money because the commissary would only take cash and the PX would take the credit card and that's how they managed to go from diapers to infant formula to all this, like they're managing everything. And my thinking, and now they have, now they're, you know, obviously they're married 30 plus years. They have this, you know, beautiful family and this very strong relationship. But they have a, those early, early days to link, to link, to think back to, to, to link back. Yeah. Like, like their, their marriage is like, is like uh, steel forged, you know, iron, iron yeah. fire, you know, so. That's something else. Yeah. So anyway, I want to get him on. He's an interesting. Yeah, he person. would be a very good person to have on. E4. Yep. So, Vanette, tell us more about Empire Square. I'm going to start talking about it, too. I was there with you and with Kenny Mintz three weeks ago because I went to Kenny's. Kenny went back to his former battalion where he was, where he was given the money from the, the Johnny Like Mon- you're gonna have to sit real close. The uh, the um, Johnny Mac Foundation, uh, basically, uh, he raised money for them, and he gave us he gave the scholarship. And I was there overnight. We went to your Empire Square the next morning. So tell me about your restaurant. Tell me about that building there, and how like what what the story is there. So, like I said, the building is uh, was built in 1855. If you um, like, I'll tell you like a brief like what I think about different things is the Northeast is real big abolitionists, and one of the you know one of the things they did is to fight the 
Southerners is they had maple syrup. So we have pure maple syrup here. We don't buy the, the fake syrup because we kind of pay homage to all of our old, the people who ran through here. So the big abolitionists, in 1855, they had to rebuild all of these buildings. Some of them will, were built with tunnels. Some were not built with tunnels. I personally think a reason you would build a building in 1855, Fugitive Slave Act was 1852. My tunnels run to the river. The only reason you're building a building with tunnels that go to the river and then go to other businesses is you are trying to help with the Underground yeah. Railroad. Now, Harriet Tubman's route did go from Syracuse north because Harriet Tubman's house, her retirement house, is right outside Syracuse. So we straight up had Harriet Tubman, fugitive slaves, going from Syracuse up through here, cross Fisher's Landing, and into Canada. So we have these. Hold on one second. Let's just put this in perspective. Okay. So your building, your Empire Square building, which is your restaurant, is yes. on top of the Underground Railroad. There well, are tunnels. There are tunnels. There are tunnels that link up with the building on the river. So their tunnels come to our place. Our tunnels go that way. The other thing is our tunnels would go um, under into a, a hotel. So there's, a, there's kind of differing. Some people say Underground Railroad would not have put fugitive slaves in hotels because that's where the slave catchers would be. And why would you put fugitive slaves where slave catchers are? Well, there are there are stories where they can validate that they put fugitive slaves in hotels because hotels would have their ledgers of free slaves and workers, not slaves. Yeah, free slaves and workers. And they would hide them because nobody had names back then. They would have like bellhop number one through five and waiter number one through 25. And it was, that is how you would hide your fugitive slaves. You'd hide them in your big hotels because the slave catchers would come in, you would open your, your ledgers, you would say all of these blacks are accounted for. Right here, we got 45 and they'd count them one through 45 and they'd look at one through 45 little faces and then they would go search elsewhere. And it was, a, it was kind of a, a way to, to hide them here. So unless you had a slave owner himself looking for a certain face, they wouldn't find them. So aside from the fact that this is so fascinating that your building sits on top of the Underground Railroad or what was likely to be the Underground Railroad, this old building with this incredible charm and this like kind of antique-ish character that you have, you've got a basement that's underneath it. And then you have a basement under the basement, right? Yes. You, you took me down there. I got the, I got the tour of this, this incredible building. And it's haunted, you say, right? There's, there's clearly ghosts that are there. Oh, yes. You'll, you'll go down there with your staff, have a couple of drinks, and have like a seance. Where you Sarah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't do that because I don't really like ghosts. Okay. But Sarah will go down there. I will go down there. and the, okay. So we've always had a ghost named Charlie. So when I bought the building, I was told within the first two weeks it was haunted. There was a ghost named Charlie. And um, so we always, we always said, Charlie, 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 things would happen. And then when, when Sarah came in, who's my bar manager from Louisville, it, he just really liked Charlie. And, and at one point she went down there and there was a, an old bottle of champagne sitting on a bench. 
And I have paid significant amount of monies to have that basement cleared out. They would take everything out. And we'll go down there and there'll be something laying in the middle of the walk that didn't used to be there. And um, it's way down there. People know it's haunted. Most people do not just hang out there except for Sarah. And, and he'll, he'll leave her, he'll leave her gifts. She really likes dimes. She'll, she'll walk around and there'll be a dime laying out. There'll be a, an old bottle of whiskey laying out. And, and in an area that I have had contractors, you know, working. And then she'll go down and there'll be, a, so, but yeah, because of that, we were, I had a, I thought he was an old white guy. And then I had an autistic um, gentleman come in and he wanted to let my, one of my servers know that there, that my place was haunted. And my server was like, oh yeah, we know. We, there's a, it's Charlie, he's down there. And he said, no, there's someone in the kitchen. And they said, well, that, no, that's Vinette. She's in the kitchen. And he said, no, 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 not Vinette. No, not, not her. Another woman, she's in there and she keeps the man in the basement safe. And so they perked up because they hadn't heard the story. So they said, what do, what do you mean? And he said, well, the man in the basement, he's got, you know, he's got a dark face. And the woman in the kitchen, she keeps him down there to keep him safe. And so, uh, well, that's another reason I think it's probably the Underground Railroad because um, it's, it's so, A, dark face, I would think it was means black. So after I heard about this kind of crazy going on, I uh, went to a, he's a mystic in the area. He kind of is the one that talks about all the spirits. So at this point, and I've never been to a mystic before, but I was like, okay, now these guys are being a little active. Our, you know, lights would go on, our doors would be unlocked. I said, I, I need to kind of figure out what's going on. So I went to this guy and he said, and you, the rule is when you go see him, you can't tell him anything. You just walk in and uh, because they don't want to be tainted. So he said, you have questions about, about spirits that live in your, your apartment or your restaurant. And I said, yes. And he said, well, there's definitely one in the sub basement and, and he appears to be black. And I said, okay. And he said, and I think he's the shoe shiner, which would go hand in hand with the, um, the hotel, because the three things that you would have fugitive slaves do shoe shine, bellhop and waiter. And he was a shoe shiner. So immediately Sarah was like, she, she took down a little shoe shining set. And, um, and, and it, it is very much quid pro quo with Charlie. If you give him something, he will give you something back. And like the other day, probably, when did I find that postcard? Two weeks ago, one week ago? Oh yeah. It was, it was actually Easter. Easter, that, that place was crazy in Easter. And, and I don't know if it was, um, Christ rising, rising for Easter. But the other thing that happened is the owner of the bar for 30 years that I bought it from, he died that weekend. And I didn't know it, but um, it, we, had a, we had a lot of activity. For example, I went, I gave a tour once. I gave a tour down there. And the woman said that someone is, someone is grabbing my, my purse. And I said, I mean, I don't know, Charlie, the shoe shiner. She goes, I really, I think, I think there's something in my purse he wants. And so she like opened her purse and she pulled out like a fool's gold rock. And I said, oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's pretty. Put it, put it on the bench right there. So she put it on the bench for him. 
And then, um, like, next the next day, was it the next day you found the postcard? So, uh, the next day, Sarah said, were you, were you downstairs in the basement? And I said, well, yeah, I, I took someone down there. She said, well, did you see what was on the bench? So we put his stuff on this little chair, and he put stuff on the bench. And I said, no, I don't think I saw anything on the, on the bench. So we went down there. Or she showed me, she said, go down and look. And I went down and there was a tiny little like postcard from the hotel. Oh, yeah, it was a, well, it wasn't from the Woodruff, but it was a, a small little postcard from one of the hotels in this area. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's completely fascinating. You've got this haunted building and this, active restaurant so tell me about your day-to-day -day with the restaurant like how does that work you, you only operate it for a couple of days a week and then you sub yeah, so we do uh we're getting ready to actually do monday through friday dinners we we used to do it all when i first came up two years ago we did we did breakfast lunch dinner every day and, and it was it was killing the staff and financially it you know for the amount of time we were working and the fact that it was killing us it I mean, we did it because we were open, but then we got an offer and someone else wanted to run breakfast, lunch. And at the time I said, yes, you take breakfast, lunch, you pay me for it. And it's going to give my staff a break. We'll be able to regroup. We'll be able to figure out um, what kind of business we want to do. It allowed us to do more community stuff. We, we put together a uh, restaurant week. We were getting ready to put together a, like a dollar days of summer membership card. We put together a progressive dinner. So giving the breakfast lunch away allowed us to kind of think strategically. So we were able to do more community things, but now we really, we focus on dinners and weekends. Our weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, pay the bills for the entire week. Wow. And you yeah. also do breakfast. Your brunches are awesome, right? Yeah, we, we make everything from scratch. Like I said, we use, uh, we use local maple syrup. We uh, make our own cheese sauce. Our cheese sauce goes on everything. I try, I get local meat. If I can, I get local vegetables. So do you cook at all today? I do. I actually do cook. I went to, so when I got out of the army, I was, I was, <laughs> I was just, I, you know, everybody gets out after 20 years, you get a disability um, block. And so I had a disability counselor and he said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Colonel Monty? And I said, I'm going to do nothing nothing i don't want to do anything and he said no you got to give back you got to get back you've been around too long and i said no i don't want a job he said well let us send you to school and i said you're going to send me to school he said yeah the army will send you to school for free i said well they teach me to cook i i could i literally couldn't cook i always had nannies and the prerequisite for my nanny is they could cook so um i tried to cook my second lieutenant and, and I couldn't cook. I, I was real bad. And, and well, y'all remember Mike Novak? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Novak hated my cooking. His, his mom was a great cook. And at one point, he, he took my cookbook and he took it and he threw it in the trash. And he said, you're never allowed to use this cookbook again. This is the worst food I've ever had. So after that, I said, I'm just not cooking again. And I didn't. I did not cook. I hired people to cook for me. And then I got out of the army and I had no money. So I had to cook and the army said, we'll send you anywhere. And I said, will you send me to culinary school? And they said, sure. 
we'll send you to culinary school. I said, seriously, you will pay for me to go to culinary school. They said, if you give us a good reason, well, you got, I remember I owned, I owned this restaurant. I didn't do anything with it, but it was a restaurant. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to culinary school and I'm going to teach those people how to run a restaurant. So I went to culinary school and I went to business school and I still couldn't get anybody to be profitable. So I just said, I'd do it myself. So yeah, so I am the executive chef. I write the menus. I uh, figure out how to cook, make the stuff. I create the smart books. Um, yeah, I can actually cook now. And Mike would be amazed. <laughs> so did you learn at culinary school? Do they teach you how to run a restaurant? Yes, it depends on your culinary school. So here in New York, we have the Culinary Institute of America. They really teach you how to be just a culinarian, how to literally yeah. go to uh, the Hyatt or Hilton and to follow rules and, and to do all that. Sullivan, where I come from in Louisville, Kentucky, that is the highest number of mom and pop restaurants anywhere in the United States. So Sullivan really teaches you to how to run your own restaurant. So you learn how to price things, you learn how to advertise, you learn how to market. So, I mean, I, it was how to like- order and do all that. Yes, like I am very, I am very, I'm Catholic, but I, you know, I do believe in it. people, you're just pushed in the right direction. So I accidentally fell into the best culinary school for an individual restaurant. I, I mean, and I don't believe in accidents, but uh, for whatever reason, I, I got thrown into a culinary school that then thrown me to business school and it all of a sudden it helped me with this restaurant. Wow. So your Sunday mornings are a big deal, right? You, you have Sunday morning brunch, you have waffles, you have breakfast and so the Kenny, bottomless mimosas. That's the big draw. Yeah. So Kenny, <laughs> I have, so Kenny and I, we were there on the Sunday morning after this event that he had and it was just you and me and Kenny hanging out, eating waffles and hanging out. We probably, I could have spent the entire day there. I think we we're there for two hours and it wasn't long enough. I wanted to be there for like 10 hours, just the, the three of us talking. It was, it was amazing how, like, you know, we, we don't know each other that well, Vanette, like we, we kind of knew of each other and Kenny and I know each other pretty well, whatever. But like, I felt like I was like with, with a long lost relative, like we were just laughing and having a great time talking about all the old times it was just it was magical it was magical but i think the most magical thing aside from our conversation which was great was the incredible waffles you make which you say you will freely give away the recipe because it's so hard to make and nobody's yeah. going to replicate it right yeah nobody i mean nobody wants to make like they are fabulous waffles but they are a pain in the ass to make because it's it's a three-step waffle you have to have buttermilk then you have to melt your butter. Then you have to bring the butter back to room temperature. Then you have to sift all the dry ingredients. And then you mix the wet. And then you mix the wet with the dry. Well, I will say that for anybody who is anywhere near Watertown, New York, you have to put Empire Square onto your list of places to go because it is phenomenal. And Vanette will treat you very well. And you get a tour. And you get a tour and you get to meet the ghost. It's going to be Charlie. Yeah. yeah. And bring him a gift. Yep. And then he'll give us gifts. So please. We do. Yeah. It's funny because there's a bar stool down there and I'll come down and there'll be like a dollar tossed in the bar stool. Just bar stool. And I'll be like, 
man, somebody thinks Charlie's a stripper because they're tossing dollars at him. <laughs> That's funny. So, Vanette, let's uh, just keeping in mind the arc of the podcast, we wanted to talk about, about the here and now, what you're doing. But then we also want to walk back the hands of time to pre-1987, what made you want to go to West Point. And then we want to walk that timeline back up to present day. So let's go back to 19, 1985, 1986. You're a sophomore, junior, senior in high school. You were in Oregon. Is that where you're from, Oregon? Yeah, so I was, I was uh, um, my junior year in high school, my dad had taken me to a couple uh, colleges. My whole family graduated. Like when I say my whole family, I mean my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, my dad, and my both my aunts and my sister went to Point Loma Nazarene College in um, it's now San Diego, California. But that is where everybody goes, and they have a good track program. My dad was on a track scholarship. My sister was on a track scholarship. So that I was sent down to visit Point Loma. And then we had some, I had a couple cousins who went to um, Point Loma and Westmont. That was the weirdest thing. I visited two schools in California, Westmont in Santa Barbara and Point Loma in San Diego. And uh, beautiful, beautiful schools. And that is, that's just where we were going to go. I and, was, um, and you mentioned you had an older sister, so she was already in college. You're, are you second sibling? No, she, I was, I, I was the oldest one, but she was, it was everybody just was gonna go there. That she went there, I did not go there. Okay, uh, like I'm the only one, I'm the only one who didn't go to Point Loma. Hmm. And so, um, I mean, we, uh, we are so like if you went to visit Point Loma. Right now, there is a building named after our family. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was going to go, but it's expensive. Those, those, private, those private Christian schools are pretty expensive. And we didn't have any money. And, uh, well, I had a small college fund that my grandparents had started for me. And then I was looking for a track scholarship. But when I came back from, I had been picked up to go to France my junior year. So when I came back from France, my dad was waving this postcard and it was from West Point's track, track, cap, uh, track coach. And he's like, Vanette, 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 fill out this postcard, fill out this postcard. This is from a uh, West Point. And I said, well, what, what does that mean, dad? He said, it means it's free. Just fill it out. <laughs> and so I didn't know what it was. I filled it out. I sent it back. And so then I got a call from coach Warner who is a sprint coach and he started asking questions. And, um, at this point I had gotten into the school in San Diego, but their, uh, their scholarship package was not very good. And so, and I was, I was, I was really fast in high school. I, I think at the time, my junior year, I was the eighth fastest, uh, track 800 girls. And so, I was a little bit irritated that this coach had not given me a better scholarship because I was, I would have been as the, I would have been as fastest on a team. So then when coach Warner called and said, well, we'll give you a full ride. Well, Hey, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that everybody at West Point got a full ride. <laughs> it's a being switch right there. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad was like a full ride. That's great. 
And so that West Point immediately came to my, um, the top. And then Annapolis jumped on board and Annapolis recruited me. And so I kind of really waffled because I, I, I didn't know, I, I literally, I didn't know. Oregon does not do military. They don't do army. They don't do Navy. I had nobody in the military in my family. And so I would pick army and then I would pick Navy and then I'd pick army and then I'd pick Navy. And finally I was like, uh, to my parents, I was like, mom, I just don't know which school I should pick. And mom says, you know, I really like you in green better than blue and army's green. So I think you should go the army route. So I ended up picking West Point over Annapolis because my mom thought I looked better in green. Just the colors. Nice. The colors. Yes. And uh, lo and behold, imagine my surprise when there is yelling. Wait, I had hold on, back up. Did you go on a recruiting trip? Did you had you gone to nothing? Zero. Nothing. I did not. I did go to the prep school because I my SAT. At one point, I was told that my SAT is still legendary for the lowest SAT that West Point has ever accepted. And Hall, you might be able to nine hundred. Yeah, that's pretty pretty low. So, yeah, I was told I was the I was the lowest lowest person they'd ever accepted. So you went to our prep, to prep school at Fort Monmouth. Yes. Okay, so you got like essentially redshirted to to do another year of academic running. preparation and also running. What was your eight hundred time? Two fourteen. And so, what did you, what did you run like the um, the two mile in? The two mile. Like well, let me think. I'm trying to think what my two mile was. It's been a long time. Like eleven fifty six. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So they they yell at the prep school though too. I mean yes. the prep school. It's not just like you were came into West Point because the first couple of weeks of the prep school, I know that they yell. They do, and I had no idea. And you, so I've got Kathy Ike story, Kathy Ike Daily. So um, I got I got some pretty bad information. Um, all around and my, my sponsor, my cadet candidate who gave me all the information, I had called her and I said, what should I take to the prep school? And she said, oh, it's like being in college. Take everything, take all the clothes you want, take your typewriter, take everything. Well, they didn't tell you that you, whatever you took, you had to carry because from Fort Monmouth to West Point, you have to carry it all. Like on your back, in your arms, you have to carry it. So I rolled into uh, Fort Monmouth for a basic training, like the Beverly Hillbillies. I had suitcases and, and bags and, and typewriters. And at one point, I mean, I literally couldn't carry everything. And Kathy Ike, just started yelling at everybody, grab this, grab this, grab this. And the girls from my uh, alpha company prep school, they helped me get all my gear from the Fort Monmouth to the bus and then to the prep school room. And I, I doubt she'd even remember that. But Kathy Ike was like key in getting my gear because I mean, like I was screwed. I had more than I could carry and they were screaming at everybody. So who were the other who were the other women that were in Alpha Company with you? Jennifer Ames. I don't know if people remember Jennifer Ames. Yep. Chris, Christy Cassidy. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Christy Cassidy was my roommate. Okay. Um. 
And I, you know what? Those are the only two I really remember. And Christy was prior service, wasn't she? No, Christy, none of those. I don't know if any of the prior service. No, there was one. Uh, Brown. Who was, who was Brown is her last name. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember her. There was one girl that got kicked out that was prior service. Yeah, my first roommate got thrown out. Um, no, she got thrown out at West Point and she was a prior service. And then uh, wasn't Tracy, uh, what was it? Tracy Hedrishite? Tracy? Yes, Tracy was. And I don't know if you remember Lynn Brown. So I Lynn Brown, know. so I'll even tell this is a hilarious story because I've never, I've, I've never seen her at a, a reunion or a podcast or nothing. But Lynn Brown stood behind me at, at prep school. And uh, I'm from Oregon. And every time somebody would say, they would say Oregon. And I would say, it, it's not Oregon, it's Oregon. And Lynn Brown would say, polygon, hexagon, Oregon, you're wrong. <laughs> and yeah, we, we just didn't really get along. The same company, she was prior service. We did not get along. So we went all four years and, um, you know, we didn't hate each other but we weren't we weren't the greatest of friends at West Point we just didn't really get along but ring weekend her and I both skipped out like immediately as soon as they said I don't know whatever we both were the first out of the chow hall the West Point the Washington hall, I, hall. I'm sorry anyway we were the first out so it was her and I and we were standing on the steps outside Washington Hall and I looked at her and she looked at me. I mean, we didn't like each other. And I was like, oh, hi. And you know, you have to ask to see each other's ring. It's just like what you do. Right. Yeah. And so she said, oh, let me see your ring. And so I put my ring out and she looked down and you know, here it is, two girl cadets, first ones out. We hit every newspaper around. Female cadets, ring weekend. And it was like, Look at, so they really coined it, you know, female cadets being friendly with each other. And it was an amazing picture of Lynn and I. But the funniest thing was, is we couldn't, we really, we didn't like each other. And we were nationwide, this photo. Wow. Uh, so, you know, we, we, and on the pre-call, Vanette, you and I talked about how there's a lot of pressure on you because you were a, you know, very good runner. And there's pressure to say you need to beat every other female cadet. Like yeah. You need you need to be like right then and there. They were setting you up to be in competition with the, with other, the uh, yeah. other women, right? Other women. Yeah. Um. So, uh, it, I, I mean, I'm Hall. You might have gotten the same thing, but it really was when you went before a PT test. They wouldn't. The only thing you had to worry about was being the the best female being yeah. the fastest female and it it never it always it didn't resonate well with me that immediately they pitted me against the other women and and I was fortunate because growing up in high school I never ran with the women I ran with the men and so I always went out to beat the other men and so even at West Point when they would say you're going to be the fastest female I would tell them, watch out, I'm gonna beat half your men. And uh, I, I never fell for that, but I 
I just, it, it never sat well with me because they would be like, you're the cutest. Oh, you're the cutest girl in your company. You're the fastest girl in your company. You're the smartest. And um, they just, it did seem like they, they tried to pit us against each other rather than working with each other. Right. And that dynamic, on top of the fact that you've also just got the natural dynamic of being at or below 10%, where the, like, like the social norms are such that you are not, you don't really have an Michael, identity. Yeah. You don't have an identity with, with, with your other female uh, cadets. And so then you end up creating this, this kind of internistic relationship where you want to disassociate with people that aren't pulling their weight. Well, and that's why I think most the as the female cadets, like if you got friendly, it was kind of like, okay, the guys were like, I can have one one friend who was a female cadet. So it was almost like vying for that too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was really, I mean, it was hot because that was you wanted to be the the favorite female. Yeah. And then Vanette and I, we barely even knew each other at West Point. We got to be friends when we were in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, well, you know, I, I because because I don't think soccer and track shared the same locker room. No, well, no, and I don't think we were in the PE classes. No, and you were in a higher, probably higher academic class. Yeah, maybe systems we could have been in, but you were with Mike in systems. Yeah, oh yeah, and Kevin Evans, Ken Evans. Yeah. You said you have a lot of Kenny Evans stories, huh? How you I do, Ken Evans. He, you know, he decided at prep school, we were both in Alpha Company. And he decided in prep school that I was, I was going to graduate West Point. And so he, I remember at prep school, I was, I mean, I was exhausted. You have to run, you have to study. I, I just wasn't very good at any of that. And he was prior service. So he had that just prior service. People could figure out how to do just enough. And I remember I would sit on my, I would sit on my desk. This is kind of pitiful. I would sit on my desk and he would put my foot in his lap and he would shine my shoes before formation. And I would sleep with my head against the bookshelf. And cause he was like, you were going to graduate. And, and I had a prep school. I had a heck of time in prep school. Cause not only was I terrible academically, I did not know how to be a soldier. I didn't know how to shine my shoes. I did not like being yelled at. I didn't get any of those rules. And Ken from the beginning said, I'm going to get you through this. So I, I have to think about it. this is what's fascinating. Here's young Vinette Couch from Oregon, plucked out of the Pacific Northwest just because she could run. She ends up going to prep school, connecting with this prepster who's saving her ass, getting her through. And then she's a career army officer. I know. <laughs> That is, I think that is the beauty of this, this experiment called West Point, where they're, just, they're trying to have West Point be like a reflection of, of society. So they're, they're really trying to pull from all these different places and, and get this representation. And so like, what, what an incredible, I mean, I wish I could just be a fly so, on the wall. Jamie, I have to, I have to tell you though, you know, it is, it's harder to get out of the army as an officer than to stay in. I, I had every intention of getting out, but I kept missing the deadline and I would go to get out and they'd be like, oh no, you just moved. You got two more years. And I'd be stuck again. 
And then I'd get ready to get out and they'd be like, wait, no, you went to this school. I have, you know, I might've got out earlier if it was easier. I just kept, I kept screwing up and I'd, I'd end up being like two more years, three more years. And all of a sudden I had 15 years and I'm like, well, shoot, I got to stay in now. But it was so bad. It was time for me to retire. Like literally I had to get out and the, the PSB, the personnel support battalion, they had to hold their hours open later because I wasn't, I didn't have all my paperwork done. I, I wasn't ready to retire and it was a Friday and I legally had to be out and I didn't have my stuff done. I mean, it's hard to get out. I, yeah. I, you know, I think that was just my issue. If I was smarter, I probably could have figured out how to get out. <laughs> you know, by the way, we should say hello to some of our classmates that are joining us in this feed because the feed is lighting up with uh, comments. So Clint Schreckheis, uh, Noreen Darcy, Alex Rogers, John Palcisco. John Palcisco just said, Preps are so proud of you. So yeah, good, good stuff, good stuff. But you know, it really, we, we were on the, on the pre-call and also when you and I were talking with Kenny, we were just remarking about what a unique set of circumstances it is that pull all these people from all these different places. And Vanette, you had some thoughts about, you, you, kind of, you kind of bucketed people into these different silos. You said, you've got your like hardcore patriotic Americans that probably could go anywhere, but they chose to go to West Point. And then you got some people that are athletes. And then you got people that got nothing at all, but this is like their lifeline to bring themselves out of whatever impoverished background they might be from. And you, you characterize yourself as being like in bucket two and bucket three, actually. Yeah. So can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, and what's interesting is, and I would say the females were the biggest microcosm. I had three women in H1. I had Susie Fernandez. I had myself and I had Marilyn King. Marilyn King was from the projects of Baton Rouge, like straight up. I remember after our freshman year, I was like, oh, what did you do for Christmas and New Year's? And she said, I hid under my kitchen table. And I said, uh, why would you hide under your kitchen table? She said, gunfire. I mean, are you kidding? I was from, at this point, I'd moved to Silverton, Oregon, where you leave your keys in your car so you don't lose them. Yeah. And she's hiding under her kitchen table. So there's Marilyn. And then Susie Fernandez's family had escaped from Cuba because of Fidel Castro had gone to Venezuela and she had gotten the president's scholar or president's nomination. So I had Cuban Susie, as English as a second language because she's a Spanish speaker. And then I had Baton Rouge, Marilyn. And then I had like left coast Vonette all in one wow. room. And then Army says, and guess what? You guys are going to be best friends. You're going to figure out how to all like each other. Dude, we didn't even speak the same language. Yeah. Well, yeah. Vanette, you also mentioned that some upperclassmen were really targeting Marilyn King. They were like, yes. you do not belong here. And she had, a, she had a classic answer for that, right? Yeah, yeah. She had come back from hiding under her table at, at Christmas. And um, she was, she was a, a tough plebe. I mean, she couldn't remember anything. Her, uh, her first day, she rolled out in her white T-shirt because they said white over gray. And she <laughs> refused to listen to me. And I said, put that shirt on with the epaulets. And she said, no, that is not white. 
she was, I mean, if a, we got a, we got a redneck coming. But that, by the way, for those who are listening, I'm just a Yeah, I mean, she, she had a hard time. And uh, they were, H1, every year, they picked one person to, to run out. And Marilyn was that person. And they would yell and yell and yell. And then they were ruthless. And we came back from Christmas break. And it was, it was a junior. And he looked at her in face and he said, look, I cannot. He was serious, too. He's like, I literally, I cannot have you being in the same army as me. I cannot have you graduating as a West Point alumni. I will pay you what you need. I will do what you need. You have got to go. What will it take? And she looked him in the eye and she said, if I go home, I will be killed. And so unless you can kill me, I'm graduating. And she was wow. serious. Yep, she was she serious. Said you have to effing kill me to make me leave this place. Yeah. Wow. And now let me tell you, he looked at her and he looked at his like left and right flanks of mean cadets. And he said, you know what? we're not going to get her out of here and they walked away and she graduated wow. and she graduated she graduated yeah, yeah she was actually graduated and was a chinook pilot wow incredible incredible and it, little old me and this is where i go back to like i just live in my life no idea whatsoever of the challenges that others were facing around me i, I mean i did not we we were saying i think on a prior podcast like a guy like me just sort of just making my way in the world, not really, not really situationally aware of what was happening in your right and left side, just getting through it. You have no idea until after the fact what, what people are going through. So incredible, yeah. incredible. That was pretty cool, pretty yeah. cool story. Where's my, I don't, I haven't seen Marilyn at a reunion, I don't even think. No, um, she is in um, like around the Richmond area. And I know she keeps in touch with uh, she can keeps in touch with Kevin Barry, okay. um, and uh, but you know she never uh, she never exactly embraced West Point. It I mean it was hard. But yeah, because like, they they tried to I wouldn't yeah. embrace it either. Yeah, and uh, then she got out at seven years. She married um, another officer who wasn't a West Pointer. She had. Um, a child pretty late in the career and um i haven't seen her in a few years but i ran into her uh, i went and visited her in um virginia and susie and i will sometimes you know we'll put all three of us and the hogs are pretty good about putting everybody on email streams okay alex just piped up said that she came to one of our reunions so she's been to at least one so oh, okay okay more and the H1, didn't H1 have the good basketball team? Well, they might have, but I was running track well, morning, I mean, noon, and night. As, as the intramural basketball team? I thought they had a good basketball team, too. No, no, you're, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Okay. That, was, that was company F1. Oh. Eight, well, but, so we it, had Kevin Barry. Well, I mean, he was core squad, so he couldn't play on the intramural team. So company, yeah. F1, company F1 competed in the brigade championship against... A4. A4 and we still A4 want to maybe it was maybe it was the H1 would go down to the Fursy Club and drink the beer. There was something yes. about H1. Oh, hog drinking team. 
We yes, have, and they would drink the. They would get the big pitchers. Yes, yes. We have a fabulous drinking team. Yes. I'm going to pull something out of my memory. You had this tack, Major Hayden. I think his name was Major Hayden. Yes. And Hayden, so didn't somebody get in trouble for drinking? And Hayden took the disciplinary track offline and said, "This is up to you as cadets to discipline this your fellow cadet." Yeah, his career got put in like, like in jeopardy because he basically said, well, I'm not going to write this cadet up. He was drunk. He did this. He did that. I'm going to let his company mates discipline him. Didn't that happen? It, it might have. It sounds like Hayden. But that was grateful because I don't know if you all remember Captain Dibbs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was our so he was our freshman sophomore. And then we had Hayden, our junior senior. It was a night and day. Yeah. Dibs was Dibs was so horrible. He was, he was like evil. He was evil. He was so evil that he was legendary even in the army because he was in Germany when I went to Germany. And uh, as a captain, he like got out at Grafenbeer and chewed out the gate guard at a Grafenbeer training exercise for not in I mean, he was so bad. But yeah, but I mean, I, th there's several Hayden stories, but some of them just aren't, probably shouldn't be. Yeah. But yeah, Hayden was pretty laid back. He was my attack officer. He was I, uh, for Buckner. I was a company commander and he was my attack officer. So that's why I, I, that's why I remember that story. He was, he was really good. Yeah, he, he would oftentimes, um, there was a, a fraternization question my senior year and he he called the, the women in and said what do you think we should what do you think I should do about this um and we told him what what we thought and then he decided what to do but yeah he oftentimes would he go, um, he go, he go off the he go off the script right he was kind of unconventional oh very oh very yeah 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 he was a interesting guy so what other memories do you have of the H1 Hogs there? At uh, You had some real characters there. You had my, my stunt double, uh, Brent Crabtree. He's, he was there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Brent was more quiet. I, I remember being Brent being more quiet then than he is now. Now he is definitely the leaders. He is a leader of the Hogs. Like okay. he has taken us under his wing. Um, there's Kevin White. I remember Kevin. So And, you know, Kevin White was... He got to be uh, the big party boy because of Tamra. Tamra. Because Tamra's parents came to all of the football games and they would bring the big uh, party bus. Who's Tamra? The RV. Tamra who? Uh, well, Tamra White. I don't know what her maiden name was. No, no, no. She's a um, what, civilian. His oh. girlfriend, now wife. Okay. okay. And then we had... We had Samuel Tabot from Cameroon. Oh my goodness, yeah, that guy was amazing. Yes, Tabot. I don't and think you beat that guy running, right? I don't think you beat him running. Uh, no, he wasn't as, yeah, I could beat him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he, I could beat. You know, I couldn't beat, y'all remember Aaron Pogue? Oh, yeah. was he in your company? He was. Yeah, Aaron Pogue was in my company. Um, he was very tight with the H1. He drew, um, he drew the back of one of our shirts. Brian Kiwak, 
also yeah. artistic. He do the back of our. Um, remember that crazy shirt where we couldn't decide whether we wanted the same on the front or the back. So we had it was when we had short sleeves. Yeah. And we had by day. I am a man by night. Yes. Yeah. So Brian Kiwak uh, drew the backside, and if you look at the lights in the bill, it says H one. Oh really? Cool. Yeah. So Brian Kiwak drew that. Then there was um, Kevin Barry. Yeah. Kevin Barry was very mild mannered because he did a bunch of sports as well. Yeah. He, he did basketball and track. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we had, a, and Greg Recker, mm -hmm. we had a, um, we used to call him a, a black and Recker because he was kind of a tool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and he, you know, he's still, he's a funny guy. We had a really, I mean, we have a good company and all very supportive. We, they still meet up to go to the tailgates. Oh, Jason Hodell. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous volleyball player. And I can yeah. tell you that, uh, so I'm real tight with women at West Point and some women will complain about the men in their company. We had really good men in H1. Jenny Bodian uh, one time came and uh, ended up sitting at H1. She came to a reunion and sat at my table because she said H1 guys were just that cool. Very cool. I just put the whole list of all the H1ers. I, I pulled up the list of our classmates. Thatcher, Tim Thatcher. That, I went to OBC with that guy. He was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> he was such a great guy. Oh my goodness. Fida uh, Costi. Fida Costi was a 90. I mean, he right. was a 91, but he was like a... He, he came back, yeah. Yeah. Dean Sievers, Dean Sievers, he's a fellow computer science guy, I think. Uh, so, good people. So, you mentioned Jen Bodian. So, you were pretty tight with Jen, even though she, she was an E1, but you yes. were pretty tight with her, right? Yeah, so, um, I was real tight. Jen, Jenny Bodian, and Noreen and I, we were in Officers Christian Fellowship together, and then we did God's Gang together. So we did, the three of us did a lot together. And then uh, Claire Jane and I were very close through uh, track and cross country. Claire Jane, Noreen and I. CJ. Yeah. You have a story about CJ. How, how, I do. I, I do have a story about CJ. Because I was, so Jamie had asked about West Point. And I was talking about how that whole cooperate and graduate, it just... It resonated with me from the very beginning. Kathy Ike at prep school, and then um, at a cross country and then track, I struggled academically. I failed classes all the time. Going into several term ends, I would, I would be failing three and four classes. So there was a track meet, and there was an invitational that we had to go to right before finals, freshman year. And I think I was going into finals failing three or four classes. And Coach Basil, instead of letting me study on the bus, just thought it would be more beneficial to call me up and sit with him and uh, so he could haze me about how important grades were. So I go up there, and I'm, I'm a freshman, and I'm sitting with him. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he's telling me about my classes and how I need to do better and blah, 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 blah which I was thinking like, okay, really, this, I'm not getting anything. I got, I got to study. What I don't know is going on is all of my history notes, and I was failing history. Literally, all my notes had fallen off my seat and had hit the floor and it had 
spread all over the floor of the bus. People were stepping on them. They were covered in soda. They were disgusting. And CJ saw this happen. And so when the bus stopped and um, I saw that my notes were everywhere, I like panicked. I mean, I started uh, like crying. I'm like, I'm gonna fail this class. And, and then my coach, freaking Coach Basil is like, I'm not done with you, couch, get inside. So I had to grab my bag and run and basically leave all my notes on the floor. And so CJ, instead of going up to uh, our room, she stayed behind and she picked up every single one of my history notes, uh, the ones that were disgusting and stuck to the floor of the bus, picked them all up and checked us into our room. Coach Basil is still yelling at me and she's got all my notes. And when I finally get up to the room, she has laid all the notes out across every flat surface. They're on the desk and the beds and across wow. the, the, um, that little heater. And we tell the story all the time to our kids because our kids were little and we'd be like, these are the kind of friends you need to have. And probably two years ago, she found a picture where she had taken a picture of one of our friends in the room and behind him, you can see all of my notes laid out drying. <laughs> and I, and I, I passed that class with a D. There you go. So Clint Schreckheis piped into the chat to ask you about your partnership with Dan Crow, your academic partnership with Dan Crow. What, what does that mean? Oh, we were both from Oregon. Okay. And so, uh, well, Dan Crow was smarter than I was. We actually, Dan and I have gotten closer. We were pretty close in um, at uh, West Point, but he was also uh, an Oregon leftist. And I was from Silverton and he was from Mount Angel, super tiny towns. And um, he just was a big, he was a big Vinette Rooter. And then we just maintained friends. But more than Dan Crow academically was Ken Evans. Kevin Evans studied with me every single night. Every night he would meet me in the library and make, make me do my math homework. And I would fall asleep and he would smack me with like a piece of paper to wake me up. Well, and then Mike helped you study too. Which, which my, everybody, Mike oh, Mike, no, oh yeah, my senior year. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like literally, if I was not for these classmates, I would never have graduated. Nope. Never. They literally, hours. You, did you do three years of staff? Or just yes, I did three and I failed four classes. And before my, um, at some point senior year, they called me in and they said, um, if you do not go to staff your senior year, you're not going to get a major. And I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, if you go to staff your senior year, you'll be able to major in something. If you don't go to staff, we'll waive it, but you'll just have a field of study. And I said, but I'll graduate on time. And they said, yes. I said, screw major. Yeah. I'll take a field Sold. of study. Sold. Yeah. West Point degree is a West Point degree. But here's the thing, though. You failed two classes plebe year, right? So you knew automatically right then you had to go to staff 
after plebe year and after yearling year. There was no choice. You knew, like, the next two years, my, I have no summers. Yeah, nothing. And yet you continue to put one foot in front of the other. You said, I'm going to get through this. Amazing to me that you had. Oh, like yeah. It was pretty scary. But remember the pots of people I said? There were some of those pots of people that there was literally, like, it, you could not, like, there was nothing after you graduated. If you didn't graduate, there was, like, Marilyn would have died. Every, before every term end, I would call my dad and I would say, Dad, I'm coming home. I'm failing out. I, you you got to be prepared for me to come home. And every time my dad would say, I spent your college fund. You got nothing. You better figure this out. So, I mean, I, I there's just, I mean, I remember when I thought I'd fail out, I, I looked at the um, NYPD because I was like, I could go be a New York City police officer. They're, recru they're, they're hiring. But yeah, I mean. Mark I, was I, a three-time staffer with you. Who was Mark? Yeah, he was yeah. a three-time stopper. He's got all the snap stars. But some people yeah. say like, that's the best time at West Point. Is to yeah, we were talking about it. I loved it. One class. Seriously. I only had to study for one class. Yep. And I didn't have sports. I didn't have to go to practice. I literally partied, studied, had lots of ice cream, hung out with friends. It, it was really, I enjoyed staff. Yeah, I, it's almost like normal college for a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't go to STAP. I, I had some close calls, but I didn't go to STAP. But um, I don't think I would have wanted to go to STAP. But I, I think it is part of the West Point experience that we don't all get the hat. And yeah, so my closest friends, like uh, Ingrid Powell went to STAP. We, mm -hmm. were, um, we were roommates for a brief time in STAP. Ingrid Powell's also a prepster. Yeah. And will actually track, too. Right. Um, um, CJ went to stop. Noreen went to stop. Like, everybody cool went to stop. I, I mean, I don't say. <laughs> yeah, Noreen, Noreen just corrected me. She said nothing like normal colors. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> well, at the time, I was just talking to someone about, um, you know, that we had classmates who had gone to college, but I think for the most most of us, we knew what we were missing socially by not going to the other colleges. But we didn't realize, like when you look back on how we had our core classes and we were all taking the exact same thing, we were all reading the exact same thing every night and taking the test at the same time. I know I didn't realize that other colleges weren't doing that. You know, I knew that they were out partying, but I didn't know that the curriculum was, I just knew people would be like, oh, I'm only taking 12 credits or 12, 15 credits. But I still thought that they were taking like the same English class. They just weren't taking as many. And then this when I found out that, no, they don't even take anything the same. This is, I had no idea. This has to suck though today, which is that with Instagram, these kids, these cadets have got to know what their peers are doing in these, other, in these other colleges. Like when we were there, your comparison other was your company mate or some other cadet. You're like, all right, well, this sucks, but we're all going through it together. But when you're sitting there looking at your phone, oh, your buddy's doing all this stuff. You know, it's gotta, it's gotta be harder, I would think, in that, in that regard, I would think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I didn't know what my, so coming from a small town, Oregon, I didn't really know what anybody was doing. Like, I wasn't writing letters or getting letters. I didn't know that my friends in Oregon, yeah, didn't have to go to school and were partying. I mean, I knew. And the other thing is I just, it sucked so bad. 
I just didn't really think about anybody else. Yeah. So I'm mindful of the fact that we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes. We haven't even talked about your 24 year career, 25 year career in the army. We have to make sure we talk about that before we wind up and give you the mic for your final thoughts. So can you give me like, now let's, let's fast forward through West Point and take ourselves up to present day. You have a significant career serving our country with incredible experiences. Give us the highlights, the lowlights, the challenges, and the, uh, and, and the accomplishments of your career. So I was very fortunate that I got to travel a lot. So I knew when I graduated that I wanted to see the world. So my first, uh, my first assignment with a lot of West Pointers was Germany. Germany was like a four or five year party. And it was, it, there was no war. So that was awesome. I did what I wanted. I, it was an amazing, I coached track. I sold art. I barely did any army stuff. Um, I was a tour guide and that was like the first four years, but I thought I was getting out and then I screwed up and I PCS, then I owed more time, came back and I transferred at that point. I was chemical. I transferred to adjutant general because one of my bosses owed another boss a, a favor and the favor was getting me branch transferred. Um, so they branch transferred me to AG. So I came back and I went to AG school. That's I went to school again with CJ and I realized that Overseas was a whole lot more fun than stateside. So I requested overseas again. So they sent me to Korea and uh, I got to Korea and I knew I wanted to command. And I was like, command sounds really hard. Hold on, but let's back. At what point are, at what point do you get married, you got kids, like, like Korea? Did oh, you no, I married, so Mike and I got married. Okay, so that was a weird, I mean, I don't, I know, I don't know how many people went through this, but Mike and I got married right out of West Point because we were pulled into um, his NCO's office and we were told that uh, he was told that if he wanted to make general, he needed to marry a good wife. And I was a good wife and I knew how to run the show and he should marry me. And now mind you, we'd only been dating until September and this was November. We'd been dating two months when we got this little, this little counseling session and I was told that uh, if I went into the army and I wasn't married, that all my soldiers would assume that I was gay and I would get thrown out because um, single women in the army are, uh, there's no single women. You're either gay or you're married or you're a bitch. And I, I, I mean, I was pretty gullible. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, well, I don't, I don't wanna get thrown out for being gay. And I don't want everybody to hate me because I'm a bitch. So um, I, I guess I need to get married. And Mike wanted to make general. And so, and I know I was not the only one that got this counseling. And Mike got the counseling. And so they told Mike, they said, you've got to be proposed to her before February. What? Or yes. post-night. Yes, exactly. We had to be, he had to propose to me. Oh, as cadets. This is as cadets. cadets. As cadets, and it was because so that they could post together. Yes. Yeah, it was huge. So we very quickly ramped this up. Uh, I met his parents at Christmas. He met my parents at Christmas. Uh, we decided we would go ahead with this. The other thing is he took the biggest drop ever in the history of West Point because he was nine, and I was 900 and, I don't know, 38. I was eight from the bottom. 
he was eight from the top. So he had to drop all of his spots for posting. I think that, by the way, I think Chris and Mike, uh, uh, Mike Rooney and Christy Rooney had a similar dynamic, I think, as well. Yeah. And that was why I took Chemical, because Chemical would guarantee us Germany, and he wanted, a, he wanted Italy, and Germany was second best. So okay. I took Chemical, and we got Germany. But yeah, so uh, my, first, uh, my first time in Germany, we were married, but he hated the army. And uh, he basically said, I'm getting out. He was recruited by Harvard. And, uh, you know, I actually kind of liked it. I was finally doing well. And he said, uh, Vanette, uh, you're going to get out of the army. And I said, I'm not going to get out of the army. And he said, well, I guess we need to get a divorce. And I said, I guess so. So um, we had a, an amicable divorce. And he went to Harvard. And I stayed in the army and went to advanced course. And so I was single in advanced course. And then I was single going into Korea. And I was single most of Korea. And then I was like uh, almost 30 at this point, 29. And I remember thinking, oh man, it's back to that a gay, a bitch or married because you can't be single. I mean, they start really looking at you weird. And so I had met another West Pointer, Brian Monteith. And I was like, I think this will work. And you know, the army pushes you real quick. So we got married like right before I left Korea so we could get assigned together. So I went Germany, Korea, uh, married and single in Germany, almost 100%, and it's 100% singled in Korea, got married, leaving Korea. And then I was like, I'm 30, I gotta have kids real quick. And so I had twins and I had a third one within my first, my next three years in um, Virginia. So I was Virginia. I did a, I worked for MDW. So I worked for um, ceremonies and special events. You know, in a as a female, that's another thing as a female, you do every Christmas party in the world. I would come in, especially the cute females. You would do Christmas parties. Yeah. I did all the parties. I was selected to be the- um, All the balls. All, all the, the balls. I was, I was public affairs officer, public affairs, civil affairs. I was a commanding general's aide de camp. Um, I don't know if you know, but that's not an authorized position, but uh, that was my position for a full year. The, um, I was the, whatever the area commander's general's wife, because she had to put on all the spouse's things. I was her aide de camp. I did, I did, I finally said something when I was a colonel, Lynette, and they, we were having, it was here at West Point, we were having this big kind of party. General Williams came in and was like, oh, we're gonna have a party. And they brought in spouses and me. And I'm sitting in this room and I finally stood up and I said, no. They're like, why? You know, you're fun. You like to have parties. I was like, I don't give a shit. There's not another officer in there except for me. Yeah. And, and they're like, well, you know, we just know that you like to do parties. I'm like, really? Have we not moved past this? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, and I had a, you, so I was the special events officer. So when I left Germany, I was tagged to go to special events in Washington, DC and be on the special events committee. But when I rolled in there, I was pregnant with twins 
And I was, they, so the director didn't know, but one of the soldiers had heard and he called me off and he said, you can't tell them you're pregnant. Pregnant women aren't allowed here because they don't look good in uniform. And so I literally had to hide the pregnancy. I did my PT test three months pregnant. And, um, and finally, when they found out I was pregnant, it was too late for them to move me because it would have looked real bad. But this was a unit where it was the old guard. So in the old guard, you could actually wear, you could actually wear the blues, the pants for the blues. Our uniform, women couldn't wear pants. You had to wear the skirt. But if you were in the old guard, you could wear the pants. But if you were a female and it was a, basically you got called into the big bossed and he would tell you if it was pants or skirts. He'd be like, nope, you're wearing skirt this time because nobody wants to see you in pants. And let me tell you, every Clinton ceremony was a skirt ceremony. You had to wear your skirt. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So, but yeah, so I did special events in Washington, D.C. That, I mean, that was cool. Um, and I had three kids under that. And then I moved to, um, oh, and then I did public affairs, obviously. So they moved me to uh, Rumsfeld. I worked under Rumsfeld under his public affairs office. So that's, what I, that's where I was for 9-11. So I was in the Pentagon. I had a Pentagon office and an Old Town Alexandria office for 9-11. Um, so yeah, we had, our office was actually hit in 9-11, but we didn't have, you know, it was one of those crazy stories where we had a meeting and we had nobody in there. Wow. Nobody in there, but I knew Holly Craig. So Holly Craig and I were closed and her office was ground zero, but she also at the last minute was like, I think I'm gonna go get coffee right. and not there. And I called, that was a weird story. I called, cause you called and you were like, you gave a name and they would tell you if they were alive or dead. And I called for Holly Craig and the person on the other side said, well, she hasn't checked in yet, what office? And I said, army G1. They said, army G1 was ground zero, she's dead. Wow. So I was told she was dead and I showed up at the ceremony and I saw her and she was very much alive, but yeah. Um, so what was that like when you, when you like like you you were basically told here's this classmate friend who they they told you she was gone and then you see her like well like well I'll tell you it was really tough because Holly went it was Holly had real survivor's guilt mm -hmm. and so when I went up and I saw her and I gave her a hug and I was like oh my gosh I'm Holly I was told you were dead and she looked at me and she said I should be dead my whole office died I lived she had a hard time yeah. it was tough. So, I mean, I would say that me saying, oh my gosh, you're alive, kind of exacerbated what she felt. Yeah. That is gripping. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough. But it was a crazy time to be there. We had the um, sniper. The, um, we had anthrax. I, so I was, by the way, I was, I was on active duty back then too, VC sniper. And I was at CECOM. And uh, we had the um, the guardrail system that could do this, like the shot spotter, the early days of shot spotter. And we had the guardrail flying around DC, trying to do the shot spotting around the, the DC uh, the shooter. Remember that? I, oh I remember yeah. That well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy time to be in DC. Yeah. Wow. So then, so then. Let's fast forward. They, did you have deployments? Did you like? Yeah. So, uh, okay. So when I was in Germany, I was deployed to Bosnia. Um, uh, and that was another one that they, uh, my commander said, I want her to be my rear D. It was my operational command. 
but the general had heard I'd done public affairs and he wanted a he wanted a public affairs forward. So as soon as my boss got on the bus to go forward, he reached back and literally flew me to Bosnia um, to be a public affairs officer. And then they didn't even have the mission. So then I just sat there and did random stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I did Bosnia and oh, I did the Korea for three years. Uh, so I was, I was forward. I was up by Camp Casey during the big flood where all the, um, all the ammunition came down. Uh, and then I, uh, so went to uh, school and then went up to 10th Mountain and did Afghanistan from 10th Mountain. Then from 10th Mountain, because I did casually, we lost, we lost 90 people in my deployment. And I was, I was casually because we were G1. So where were so you? Where were you in Afghanistan? I was in Bagram because I was headquarters, but 10th Mountain was all over the place. What, what years were you there? I was there from 06 to 07. Okay. Wow. But yeah, so since I had such a... And that's a, when you bought your place. That's when you bought... That's, that's when, when I bought, bought the place. place, yeah. So you're in Afghanistan and you've also, you're buying this restaurant that you now own and run, right? Yeah, so I bought the restaurant in 05 because when I arrived at 10th Mountain, they were in Iraq and there was nothing better to do. And so I just decided to buy a restaurant because that's what, that's just... Cause I'm ridiculous like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I bought it and I, uh, attempted to like lease it out to this Mexican restaurant and I was deployed, but, oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, that was kind of crazy. Cause you would get, Hey, you're dealing with real deployment stuff, like people dying. And then you've got weird, you got emails coming up about like sales tax being due. Wow. But Yeah. So I came back you're and uh, handling, you're handling all these multiple tasks and you got kids. And I got four children, four <laughs> children. And at this point, Brian had gotten out of the army. My second husband, I got picked up for CGSE. He did not. He was very upset about that. So he decided to get out of the army and stay in DC. And he, he said, I think it's really best for you and the kids to just go forth and conquer in the army, me and four little minions. And, um, like I, I have a nanny who was with me for six years and we have a, a book out there because talk about uh, the comedy of errors with uh, her and I and four little kids. It was fairly crazy. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, the, my nanny and the four kids hung out in the restaurant while I was deployed. And the ghosts love my two children, love them. <laughs> But yeah, so I went from here and I went back to Alexandria and did Army Casualty for four more years at Army level. And then I moved to Fort Knox with Army Casualty. And then I was like, I'm going to get out. And they offered me Korea with the kids. And so I thought that'd be cool to show them overseas. So I took the kids to Korea. We lived in Seoul. That was, that was very fun. And then we came back and uh, I went back to Fort Knox because I wanted to retire out of Fort Knox. And I finished up at Cadet Command. So I started my army career at West Point and I finished my army career in cadet command. And so my farewell at army career was with cadet command, which I absolutely could not stand. I and didn't know you were there. Cause I, when I was at Fort Knox, I, I worked with cadet command, but I wasn't in cadet command, but yeah, that's a different beast. Oh, so completely I, like, different beast yeah. when you're working up at that higher head. Oh my gosh. It was awful. 
So yeah. I had a whole, I had you know, a whole. So, what makes it so awful? What, like, give me some examples. They just, uh, yeah. They got a big chips on their shoulders. Yes, that's it. Remember, Jamie, we talked about West Point versus Catholicism. Like, uh, an, an army captain can get in trouble. It's an army captain. But if it's a West Pointer, it's a West Point captain. Oh, oh and they would. So Vonette was helping me to reconcile my own personal beliefs with, with Catholicism, right? And the whole sort of like, you know, I, 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 I socially am very supportive of the LBGTQA <laughs> community, but yet this conflicts with Catholic Church and, and then, and then, and we were talking about, I mean, I'm basically one of the last remaining Catholics in my family. Uh, and so. And I'm the first. <laughs> the thing that's the go-to though, the go-to is like, why do they protect pedophiles? Like, they protect pedophiles. And Vanette had a, a good perspective on this, comparing it to ROTC and West Point, right? So what was your what was your parallel for that? So I said that, uh, I basically said that you always take out, you always really try to take out the oldest, the most, uh, the, the most famous. So the Catholic faith is the oldest uh, uh, Christian-based faith in the world. And West Point is the oldest army you know, officer leadership in the world. And if you're, you always try to take out the top. So if you're going to badmouth something, you know, if it's a, you know, you'll say it's a priest, but if it's a, if it's a Baptist, you don't say it's a Baptist. You just say you barely, uh, but you barely even hear about it. But I mean, I, it, it's across the board. We just, we take out the top. So being in cadet command as a West Pointer, um, I heard all sorts of crap, yeah. but I got the last laugh because my retirement, my 06 came and he didn't help with anything. And he rolled in and said, okay, you know, I thought that we would do this and we would do that. And I said, sir, I got this, I got this coordinated. You just sit right there and I'll, I'll tell you when to come up and talk. And so uh, I invited him up, but my like sign off, I said, okay, you know, I wanted to let everybody know how, you know, I've got almost 30 years in, I started at West Point. I ended at Cadet Command. I think I got a pretty good idea. And I need to tell you, West Point is way better than Cadet Command. <laughs> always go West Point. Now I got one going ROTC, but oh well. Well, that's funny. You know, I have like this, this pre-call template where I ask these kind of like questions to promote, to, to get stories going. And the one, one of the questions is, uh, do you have a story of purpose? What is your story of purpose? And Vanette answered that. You said, my life is like a pool table. I am the cue ball. God is the player. I go where I'm hit and do my best, right? That, that's your perspective. Pretty interesting. Here you, you know are. where I got that? West Point. I created that story at West Point. Wow. Wow. You need to read, if you haven't read Scotty Smiley, his book called Hope Unseen, and he's the class of 2004 graduate. And he was blinded in Iraq. And he says the same thing. He said before he was blinded, he has a story of where before he was blinded, he tried to surf and he couldn't surf. His buddy takes him out and he's trying to surf all day and he's just like, never can do it. He gets blinded. Best friend takes him back out and says, come on, Scotty, we're going to surf. And Scotty's like, dude, did you forget what happened before I was blinded? I can't surf. And he's like, no, 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 you're going to do it this time. He goes, just feel the water. I'm going to give you a push and feel the water. So Scotty goes, he falls down and Jeff goes, 
no, I told you, feel the wave. He goes, when you feel the wave, you stand up and you're going to be fine. So second try, now he's blind, feels the wave, stands up, surfs all the way in. And there just happened to be a guy taken and took pictures of him. So he's got a picture of it. But he says after that, and I've always remembered this, he said prior to that, I thought that God was, I was going through life and God was right behind me, pushing me. And he goes, after that, he goes, I realized I'm just in it for the ride. And he goes, God's got the plan. And he goes, there's no reason that I, I should have been surfing. Yeah. Well, but you know said, what? It makes it easy. If you don't have to worry about it, if you just like make yourself um, like agreeable or accepting to wherever you go, it, I mean, I tell everybody, I'm just, whatever's easy is what I do. Yeah. If I just kind of accept that I'm going to go where I'm shoved, that's where I go. Yep. So, Vinette, we're kind of reaching the end of our podcast. I want this is kind of like culminating to your perspectives and thoughts about your career and how you might want to leave our classmates with some of your own personal perspectives. And so, I give you the open mic here. What, what, how would you, how would you like to leave us? What, what are your thoughts with, uh, to, to share with our class? Oh, geez, I. I would say my thoughts to leave with the class are to uh, to continue to remember, cooperate and graduate. You know, we're still all there for each other. It's been, I don't even know, 30 some years. And uh, I still, if anything is tough, I call my West Pointers. I would say if, if you need to call somebody, your left and right flanks are still there and that's who you call. That's wonderful. It makes me think too about that conversation that you and Kenny and I have. We're just sitting there just three people talking about our kids, talking about our lives. It's wonderful. What a, how blessed we are to have each other. How blessed we are to have this incredible. And everybody's gone kind of, I mean, I think everybody's gone through something, something sort of similar. You just got to have to look. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me say to all the people that are joining us, we've had a lot of people roll onto the podcast tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Clint and Jeff and Heather, Noreen, uh, Alex, uh, I'll probably miss a few others. It's been a great time. But you are, you are, you are freaking amazing. You are an amazing human being. I, I am so impressed by you. I'm just, I can't get over like your ability to just handle all these different things coming at you with such, such grace and, uh, and, and you're an inspiration. So thank you for that. Thank you for Thank you for joining us tonight on the Ograd Podcast. I'm going to let the credits run out. Um, and by the way, one alibi fire here. We didn't talk about your walk-up song. Why did you choose that walk-up song? We're going to end with the walk-up song as well. But why the walk-up song? Well, so the walk-up song was uh, Son of a Bitch, Give Me a Drink. And I just really think, if you think about our time in the Army, everyone's like, drink water, drink water. Everything is about drinking. And I love bar now. And my, Sarah, my bar manager, if I'm just really stressing, she will toss a drink in front of me and just be like, boss, have a drink. And I, I just, you know, whether you want to drink a milkshake or coffee, think how much coffee you drink. It's just really all about drinking. <laughs> so we're going to let the credits, we're going to let the credits cheers. roll out. With that cheers, to that. cheers to that. Cheers to that. Thank you for joining us tonight, everybody. Duty shall be done, and we'll be joining you again with another podcast soon. Son of a bitch!
drink One more night 